Around the year 160 AD, Polycarp, a bishop of the church in Smyrna, was apprehended by Roman authorities. These days were tumultuous times for the early church. Christians were considered atheists by the Roman culture because their rejection of the pantheon of Roman gods. Christians faced the threat of death on a regular basis, the only way out being to deny Jesus Christ as Lord. At age 86, Polycarp was threatened, first with wild beasts and then with the fire. But God had warned him about this in a vision. So when the Romans arrived to arrest him, he requested an opportunity to pray before going willingly with them. Two hours later, they could barely pull him away. He was so full of the spirit and grace. When he appeared finally before the Roman proconsul, the proconsul said, I have wild beasts. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Polycarp's response was quick and definitive. Call them. It is unthinkable for me to repent and to turn from what is good to what is evil. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. Again, Polycarp responded resolutely. You threaten me with the fire that burns for only a moment and then is extinguished. Yet you know nothing of the coming judgment, the eternal flame that is reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring what you will. Boom. An ancient microphone dropped before microphones even existed. Polycarp's quick wit and sharp tongue were not his only defense in the face of death. No, people said that he was a man full of the spirit. He had a faith that was unshakable, honed in years of faithful service to his Lord as one of John's disciples. So before we turn to today's text, I pose this question to you. Are you ready for your microphone drop moment? Good morning. My name is Greg Nelson. I'm one of the elders here at Jubilee Church. And I wanna thank you for joining us Today, we're so glad that you are here with us as we conclude our series, Daniel, Behind Enemy Lines. This is the fourth message in our series, and we have, as we've gone through this series, considered many helpful things. I, I, I trust that you have been blessed by what God has been teaching us, drawing out of the scriptures. Uh, you know, when we began this series, we looked at Daniel and these three Hebrew youths. We considered that they had been carried off to Babylon, that they recognized that there was a cultural challenge from the Babylonian captors to conform to the culture around them, to assimilate those values. They were able to resist this, maintaining their Hebrew identities, in large part by practicing their faith as a daily lifestyle, not just a, a weekly uh, uh, activity. We also considered the temptation to, to withdraw from the culture and to reject it rather than to engage it. Instead, Daniel and his friends, their lives are an example of what kind of outsized impact we as believers can have if we instead choose to be savvy students of the culture. This provided Daniel and his friends many opportunities to influence Babylonian culture from within over long uh, careers as advisors to the king. 
Today in Daniel chapter three, I wanna consider the text in three main movements. The first is idols compete for our worship. Second, the faithful resist false worship. And third, only God is worthy of our worship. So first, idols compete for our worship. You know, idolatry, it sounds like a really ancient and archaic term, and frankly it is. Created things competing with the almighty God for the central place in the human heart is as old as, well, the human heart. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, they were choosing the promise of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, the wisdom and the freedom from the need to rely on God that it offered them. They chose that and worshiped that more than they worshiped the true God. And in fact, the Babylonian exile, which we consider all throughout Daniel, is in itself the result of human idolatry. God sends prophet after prophet to speak to his people when they live in the promised land. And in Jeremiah 25, verse 6, he says to this, Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, and do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands. Then I will do you no harm promising to relent, to protect, and to maintain his people in the promised land if they would only return to true worship. But alas, they did not, and they were carried away. And now, even in their exile, the temptation to idolatry is intensified. When Nebuchadnezzar unveils his golden statue, yet another idol has emerged, competing for the minds and the hearts of God's people. It is appropriate then for us to ask the question, what idols are competing for my devotion? At first glance, you might overlook this question. You might gloss over it. You know, Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue is long gone. People today aren't getting onto Amazon and, and clicking to order little statues and little gods, local deities made by local artisans. But the reality is that by definition, any created thing can be an idol because any created thing can compete for our devotion, our allegiance and our trust. So the short answer to the question, what is competing for my worship is everything. Everything in my life is a potential idol because everything in my life can become the object of my worship, of my hope, of my devotion of my trust. Nebuchadnezzar's image, the golden statue, represents all idols, especially those that are unquestioningly embraced by the culture. Work, wealth, comfort, individualism and personal freedoms, relationships, sex and sexuality, even politics and our hobbies, all of these things speak to us. They offer us something and they demand something from us. Even in our Christian subculture, we can so often become defined by our denominationalism, our doctrine, our worship styles, our politics, even our ethnic identities. Rather than being defined by the one who has called us and redeemed us and made us his own, we allow these false idols to tell us who we are and to direct our lives. These things demand our attention, our time and our money, our devotion. We sacrifice for them. We serve them. And at the drop of the hat, we turn to embrace them, even to protect them. 
So we must regularly, as disciples of Jesus, thoroughly examine our hearts and our lives and ask the question, who or what is competing for my devotion? And there are real consequences to this dedication or lack thereof. In these categories, specifically because we know that we are shaped by the things we choose and cherish. Say that with me. Choose and cherish. Psalm 115 says this, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Second, the faithful resist false worship. It's truly fascinating to me the way that these events play out in Daniel chapter three. Uh, you know, the text describes this in such a way that it's clear that the unveiling of the image, the decree to bow down and worship and the threat of death all happen in rapid succession. The people are caught off guard by this. This realization actually draws some sympathy from me. I mean, consider this. When are you most likely to make a rash decision, a decision that you would definitely regret? Is it when you have lots of time to think and to plan and to weigh your options? Or is it when you're caught off guard, when there's urgency, when you have to make a split second decision? Well, I can tell you this. The last one time I was driving between locations to preach and I got stuck behind a train. So I rerouted myself. And as I was frantically driving to try to make it back, I cut through a construction zone. Well, one illegal turn later, the flashing lights behind me had taught me that I made a wrong decision. It's in those moments of intensity when we're caught off guard that we're most likely to make a decision we regret. And so you can imagine the pressure that the people feel when they are confronted with this threat of death, blindsided by a completely unexpected, life-threatening moment. Verse seven states, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold. The only people who reportedly resisted worshiping this golden image were some Jews. Think about that for a moment. Only some of the Jews, even after their Babylonian exile experience, they hadn't yet all learned the lesson and some bowed down, but some resisted. The accusers who come to King Nebuchadnezzar go on to say this. They, speaking of those Jews, they never serve your gods, nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Is it just me or is there a grudge here? You know, these Jews, specifically Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had been living a set-apart and distinct life ever since they arrived in Babylon. They were consistently seeking a life of integrity and faithfulness to Yahweh. Make no mistake, the scripture says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's easy to see Nebuchadnezzar as the true villain in this text. But rather than simply looking for a boogeyman, let's take a different view. Consider this, the entire nation of Babylon has bowed down to this idol, 
All of them have fallen in line with the king. All the nations and people of every language, the text says, fell down and worshiped the image of gold. Consider the power of peer pressure, the, the cultural inertia to bow down, to put it into context. How do you respond when your Twitter feed is firebombed with hashtags? Do you retweet because it's the true position of your heart? Or do you feel pressure to join with the crowd? Are you virtue signaling? What about that water cooler talk in your office? When everyone is ridiculing a, a particular viewpoint, do you join in in the laughter? Or do you humbly present an, an alternating viewpoint, trying to create an atmosphere of dialogue and understanding rather than one of hostility? I mean, these often seem like small temptations with minor consequences. But the fiery furnace of social shaming and the cancel culture are intense. In recent months, multiple people have lost a job or been ostracized from their tribe because of a, a differing viewpoint, a social media post, or the rabid backlash of the cultural collective. Responding to these moments with faithfulness, integrity, and grace takes more than just boldness. It will take consistent training in righteousness, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. One of the points we've considered in the first two and three messages in this series is that these young men from the beginning had recognized that their Babylonian re-education was an assault on their values, on their identity, and on their culture. They began to look from the beginning for ways to maintain their distinctiveness and their faithfulness to Yahweh. From, from preferring their Hebrew names, names to keeping kosher to their regular prayer rhythms, all of these things were designed to help them stay true to God. They did this on the regular, not intermittently, but daily. They successfully practiced faithfulness in the simple things, the little things, the mundane things. And this repetitive activity trained them for their great moments. And now all that training is about to pay off. Those of us who desire to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, we must ask ourselves these questions. Have I invested in my soul today? Am I prepared for the day of trouble? Am I training myself well? When opposition comes, when trials come, when fear emerges unannounced, will our reflex be to stand firm on God? I had a specific moment in my, uh, in my training when I was a medical student. I was at a party with friends, and suddenly the idea of religion came up. And as we were talking, I was faced with the question, will I represent Christ? And so I spoke to my friends in a way that I thought was kind, thoughtful, um, respectful about the fact that Jesus Christ is unlike any other God, that his claim to deity is uh, unassailable and that God has sovereignty and that every knee must bow. Well, you can imagine the backlash that I experienced in that moment. And tell the truth, after that moment, I, I did not feel like a champion of the faith. I had faithfully defended Jesus' claims to exclusivity, God's sovereignty, but I felt like I had lost the battle. No one came to faith. 
No, no one backed me up. And in fact, my friends had rejected me. You know, I went home feeling totally defeated that night. I really cared deeply for my classmates and I cared what they thought of me. But truth be told, I also let the enemy convince me that I had failed when in fact I had succeeded. By God's grace, I'm thankful to say that I did not shrink back, but I told the truth. And to the best of my ability, I testified to Jesus Christ. You know, the outcomes are not our responsibility. Conversations are, conversions are not how we define success. Faithfulness is the measure of success. And that is all that we are called to do. Third, only God is worthy of worship. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you out of my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love this response. Actually, your majesty, your question doesn't even deserve a response from us. But since we're here, we'll tell you. The God who is able to deliver us out of your hand, his name is Yahweh. And he is sovereign. He will do what he wants to do. And rescue or no rescue, be it known that we will never serve you or worship your idol. Or as Polycarp put it, you threaten me with a fire that burns for a moment and then is extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Bring on whatever you want. Let me briefly summarize how the rest of the chapter goes. Nebuchadnezzar has the three young men bound by his strongest military men and cast into the fiery furnace. To his amazement, he then remarks that there are not three, but four men walking around in the fire, unharmed, free and unbound. And the fourth looks like, and I quote, a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then calls Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael out of the fire. And when he and his advisors see for themselves that these young men have not been harmed by the fire, Nebuchadnezzar proclaims that Yahweh is not only God, but the most high God. The chapter ends with these words from Nebuchadnezzar. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who can rescue in this way. Amen. I could end the sermon right there, but there 
is no God who can rescue in this way. But in what way did God rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? So often, when we are faced with a potential crisis, our response is to ask God to protect us from the trial. How many times have I prayed for God to deliver me even before the struggle, to take me away and prevent the difficult circumstance altogether? This is one of my most consistent prayers. And I'm certain that in his grace, he has saved me and spared me from more than I could even imagine. But does the scripture represent the Christian life as a smooth sailing uh, string of easy circumstances? Should we expect God to provide us an impenetrable hedge of protection? Is that what it means to be in his favor? Sounds nice, doesn't it? An invisible wall of blessing so that no trial or tribulation can break into my life. Nice, yes. Biblical, no. If that were true, how would we make sense of Jesus' own words? I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Or the words of James, his brother, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast in trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to all those who love him. Or even Paul, Paul's words. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. These do not sound like the words of men whose God has protected them from every challenge. While it is not wrong to pray for God's protection in our lives, especially deliverance from the evil one, it is misguided to expect that all of life should be smooth sailing for the believer. The scripture paints a very different picture. We should expect, should we expect a life without troubles or challenges? No, but we are more than conquerors through Christ. You know, a conqueror is not one who never struggles. A conqueror is one who overcomes every struggle. There is no other God who can rescue in this way. But in what way exactly did God rescue them? You know, the text does not say because of their faith, they were prevented from even entering the fire. It does not say the king had a sudden change of heart because of their eloquent defense. Or it does not say they never even felt the heat of the flames. What it does say is this, they passed through the fire. The fire had no power over them and there was another in the fire. You, don't you see that the way that God rescued them was not protection from this trial, but preservation through this trial? Not protection from, but preservation through. Imagine that in this moment, they were thrust into the furnace their lives flash before their eyes. They flinch in fear, expecting searing pain. And then suddenly their ropes fall off and they're in the presence of God's messenger. This is the great hope of the believer. Not that we simply have an easy life 
Not that the culture leaves us alone or embraces our viewpoint. No, not even that God would do a miracle for us, but that he would do a miracle in us, that he would give us a steadfast, rock-steady faith that can stand the test, that he would fill us with confidence and that his presence would be with us. Our great hope in Jesus is not to skip over every trial, but that we would traverse and transcend, that we pass through the fire, and in so doing, we overcome the worst that the enemy could throw at us. Listen again to these words of Paul. For Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you see what Paul is saying here? The way to have Christ more fully is to suffer with him, The way to spiritual life is through death. The way up is down and the way over is through. Embracing Jesus in the midst of every challenge, every trial and every storm is the surest way to pass through the fire unharmed. Unharmed, but not unaffected, mind you. Notice God not only protected them, but he set them free. They went into the fire bound, but in the fire, their chains and their ropes fell off and they walked freely. Nebuchadnezzar intended to destroy them with the fire, but God used it to set them free. Friends, this is the promise of our faith. Not a smooth and comfortable life, but peace in the midst of every storm. An experience of the assurance of God's presence and and release from the things that bind us. Freedom from the culture's influence and a knowledge that he is carrying us from one degree of glory to the next. What trial are you experiencing right now? In what way is God calling you to enter the fire? How will he surprise you with his presence, with his deliverance? What chains and shackles does he want to pull off of you by going through and not over? Will the flames of fear be quenched in your life? Will the heat of an honest disagreement be corrected through a kind word? Will facing the fires of the culture lead to greater freedom to live for Christ? I believe God wants to deliver us to a deeper walk with him, but that path to deliverance is not around. It is through. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your grace, Thank you that you are faithful to be with us. Thank you that you carry us through every trial and we can trust that your love will be there to meet us. In Christ's name, amen.